I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise, and today is kind of a special day because I have the privilege of introducing our new host, Nate Hedgie. Yes. Welcome, Nate. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really like the drum roll. (laughs) So Nate has been a reporter for the Mountain West News Bureau out in the Rocky Mountains, um, what are a couple stories you've uh, you've done recently that you're proud of? Yeah, uh, we just wrapped up a pretty big investigation into jails, um, tribal jails operated by the uh, the federal government, um, and some malfeasance and mm-hmm. neglect and misconduct that was happening there. I also did a really fun story about stopping the plague that was ravaging black-footed ferrets by dropping pills in peanut butter pellets from a drone (laughs) in eastern Montana. That was a really fun one. Can you Um, imagine being like a person just like not knowing what was going on and having peanut butter falling from the sky as you (laughs) want? You're like, what what is this? And you're just getting like hit in the head by peanut butter pellets. And you're like, ow, what was that? (laughs) Oh, sorry. We're trying to, we're trying to uh, combat the plague. So just ignore us. Um, (laughs) Indeed. So I've, I've, been lucky enough to get to travel a bunch and, and do a lot yeah. of weird, fun stories. And you're already working on some stories for us, and we're, I'm really excited to hear them. But before that, I think that it's important that we do a lightning round for listeners to get to know you. Um, five uh, rapid-fire questions. Okay. Are you ready, Nate? I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite tree? A uh, madrone, or also known as a madrona, or an arbutus tree. They're all the same thing. Oh, I've never heard of this. They're these beautiful red 
trees and I just really like the feel of them. It's just really smooth. And I grew up partially in British Columbia and you would see them on the coast and I just, they give me warm, fuzzy feelings. Warm, fuzzy feelings. Okay. Question number two, I'm actually going to steal this from Mike Berbiglia's podcast, Working It Out. What is a piece of advice you've received in your life that has actually worked? Um, wow. That's a tough one. Oh, don't swear. If there's ever a live microphone in your face, never swear. Very apropos for a radio host. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I've I've I learned that lesson very early on. Never never say a bad word in front of a microphone. What is a piece of outdoor gear, like your top piece of outdoor gear that you could not go without? Uh, probably trail running shoes. You're not an outdoor barefoot runner. No, I'm not. I'm not like some people who work <laughs> at outside. Well, I like, guess like other unnamed, unnamed people, people that remind people who who like a, rhyme with flail or flimby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a different kind of shoe. No, I like a pretty traditional trail running shoe. What is something you're looking forward to? I am looking forward to doing a bunch of weird, crazy, hopefully profound episodes of Outside In because I've admired this show for years, and I'm still like. Aww mind boggled that I get to be the host of it. Finally, if you had to pick from the following fruits as the best fruit ever, which one would win? The hot pepper, the gourd, the vanilla bean, or the coconut? Hot pepper. Absolutely. Ah! <laughs> hot pepper. You know this is a loaded question, right? Whoa, what does it mean? What did I did I just answer it wrong? Oh, it's an out it's an outside in episode. You you cited that's Taylor Quimby's uh, presentation. Oh yeah, uh, this is an Easter right. egg for longtime listeners of the show. That's right. Yeah, basically, a few of us just argued why a particular fruit was the best fruit of all time. That's right, I have not listened to that episode. I've seen it up there. All right, well, take it away for this episode. This is our outside inbox. So our episode today is going to be all about space. Space. We asked you to send us questions about space. You send us a bunch, and every other week we answer one of them on our radio broadcast. But we don't want you all podcast listeners to miss out, so we're bringing them all together now for a single episode in our latest installment of The Outside Inbox. <laughs> ba -ba -ba. Ba -ba -da -da. You know, there's many sounds in that little stinger there from, you know, the earthly natural world. But it does make me wonder if space, space counts as the outdoors. It's like the great, great outdoors. It absolutely counts as the outdoors. It is, <laughs> as you said, the farthest out of doors you can get. The doors are so far away. <laughs> They're like thousands doors. of miles away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you open the doors, you literally like boil to death. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or freeze to death or do whatever the heck you do when you're out in space and open doors, which is, I mean, we just don't recommend it. I don't recommend opening doors in space. All right. So we're going to bring you this first one that producer Jessica Hunt answered with me, which also happened to be my very first outside inbox. And I remember I was still trying to figure out all my recording equipment. And you made a joke that I sounded like John Mulaney in that that podcast SNL episode. The SNL sketch. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so apologies if it sounds a little weird. We've gotten a couple of listener questions about backyard astronomy, how to start, what kind of equipment you need. So, Nate, you're based in Montana, big sky country, right? Oh, yeah. And the stars here are absolutely stunning. I mean, I love going out camping and just staring at them for hours. Well, I can identify Orion's belt. And everyone I talked to said that's a good starting point. 
But with all the images from the Hubble telescope and now the James Webb Space Telescope, that's not necessarily where everyone even starts. When I talk about going outside with some of my younger people, they're like, but the pictures are better than what I can see outside, which, which to me is, is backwards. <laughs> That's Susan Rolk. She teaches high school physics and chemistry in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. To me, it's the incredible night sky and just the awe of looking up at the black and all these beautiful jewels that are twinkling. Susan, by the way, is also what's called an Airborne Astronomy Ambassador, a study program run by NASA for teachers. And Susan says to get started, you don't necessarily need a fancy telescope. Binoculars are great. There's some really great objects that you can see just in the uh, Big Dipper. The bend of the Big Dipper is actually a double star. It's Mizar and Alcor. So if you look at that, you'll suddenly resolve and see two stars. So is the Big Dipper... It has more than just the stars that I'm seeing, like when I look at it at the naked eye. That's pretty amazing. I know. And just with binoculars. Here's Jennifer Willis. She's a columnist for Sky and Telescope. Binoculars have the advantage of being more portable. Um, They're easier to grab when you have only a few minutes. Um, Binoculars also generally offer a wider field of view than a larger telescope, like um, having the entire moon in one view as opposed to a, a closer up slice of it. Other gear, Jennifer recommends bringing along a reference like a guidebook and something called a planisphere. Basically a star chart on a wheel and you just uh, turn it to match up with the date and the time that you want to stargaze. They're made for different latitudes, so that's something to keep in mind. Okay, but what if you do want to try a telescope? You don't actually have to buy one. Here's Susan Rolk again. So you can go to your local library And you can check out a telescope. You can check out a telescope from the library. Uh, Highly recommended as a way of getting started. And Jennifer Willis says, seek out your local astronomy club. For instance, if you really have your heart set on Saturn, you can look at Saturn through five different telescopes, maybe, and, and figure out which one is going to suit your purpose. What about stargazing apps on your smartphone? I mean, I feel like there's so many of them. Yes, Susan recommends Starwalk 2 and Stellarium. She also has a note of caution for using your phone while stargazing. I would put the night mode on my phone so that when you go out, it's showing a darker screen and red light so it doesn't ruin your night vision when you're outside. Very important for stargazing. And I have to admit, even in the daytime, that my vision is terrible, so I'm concerned. What am I going to see if I'm looking at the stars? But Susan says there's a big push to bring astronomy to the visually impaired and even the blind. NASA's actually taken their, some of their photos and they've turned them into sonic representations with the different wavelengths being different notes or played by different instruments. There's 3D printed material that you can get so you can see, meaning feel, what an asteroid is like or what the um, supernova remnant Cassiopeia A feels like which is pretty cool. Yeah, I would say that's amazing. And so simple. We reconnect with the universe by looking up at the sky, no matter how we do it. Here's Jennifer Willis. There is something very, very reassuring in the enduring skies. Even if everything goes wrong in my life, even if the world ends, it's not the end of everything. And I find such peace and quiet exhilaration in that. 
That was our producer, Jessica Hunt, and we're going to link to our top tips on getting into stargazing and astronomy and share a link to the music you're hearing right now representing space on the episode post for this on OutsideInRadio.org. I really love that music. It's so cool. Moving on to our next question, producer Felix Poon answered one about the sustainability of space travel. So continuing our space-themed questions, Jasmine Castro-Diaz asks, what does the future of space travel look like in terms of environmental sustainability, like fuel, effects of launches, etc.? I feel like we never talk about space travel when we talk about the big contributors to climate change. I mean, I imagine that a single rocket launch burns a lot of fuel. It definitely does. I spoke to Dr. Martin Ross about this. He's a scientist with the Aerospace Corporation, and he says that a typical rocket launch burns about the same amount of fuel that a day-long flight across the globe burns. But Ross says this isn't what concerns him the most. We don't care about rockets' carbon footprint. That's irrelevant. It's the particles. Remember the old saying, it's the particles, stupid. The old saying, of course, it's the particle, stupid. Everybody's heard that. <laughs> yeah. So Ross says the emissions don't matter because CO2 emissions from rockets are seven times less than airplanes per kilogram of fuel burned. Plus, there's just way fewer launches than there are flights to begin with. In fact, the rocket industry burns just one one thousandth of one percent of the kerosene that the aviation industry burns. But when it comes to soot particles, a rocket engine emits hundreds of times more soot particles than a jet engine per kilogram of kerosene burned. Plus, material that re-enters the atmosphere burns up, and it turns into even more soot particles that collect in the stratosphere, higher up than the kinds of pollution we're used to talking about. And these particles uh, scatter and absorb sunlight. They change the temperature and circulation of the stratosphere. Even Ross, who's studying this, says we still don't fully understand the consequences because pollution in the stratosphere is just so new. We don't have the data or the models to predict what could happen. So are there any alternatives that don't pollute? Well, Ross says hydrogen could make for good rocket fuel, but the technology isn't quite there yet because of the extremely low temperature that liquid hydrogen has to be kept at, for example. But what if I told you that there actually is a pretty wonky idea that just might work? I'd be interested. I'd be interested. So I'm going to show you a video from a spaceflight company that's trying to get into space without a conventional rocket. And just to be clear, they're not working on getting people up to space. They're doing something to get satellites into space. All right, let's watch. Okay, so we see this thing that looks like a gigantic fan blade with a small spaceship attached to the end. And this fan blade is inside a chamber that's set at like a 45 degree angle pointing towards the sky. Okay, now the fan blade is beginning to spin. The fan blade's going really, really fast. Super fast. Wow. Whoa. Oh, it just launched. It just released the ship into the sky. Now it's in space. So basically it was flung into space using centrifugal force. And only then does an actual rocket on the bottom turn on. A very small rocket ignites to provide the additional velocity to, to obtain orbit. This is Jonathan Yaney, CEO of Spin Launch. He says the rocket kicks on after it passes through the stratosphere. 
They had their first successful test launch last fall, which was just a proof of concept, so it didn't go completely into space yet. But they've actually like gotten to a point where they've, they've, they've created this thing. It's not just a yeah. computer-generated image. Like they've, yeah. they've built it. That's really cool. And even if this thing isn't completely net zero, it's still way cheaper per launch and requires way less fuel. But I also feel like there's this thing that happens with technology, like you're going to make a thing more efficient, it's more affordable, sure, but you know, when something's more affordable, then consumption increases. Yeah, I just learned that this effect is called Jevons paradox. But still, I think it's a good thing to become more efficient. I mean, launches are dramatically increasing. I mean, yeah, we are entering like a new space age. Yeah, so if we're going to go into space anyway, we should find better ways of doing that, right? I think we just need to look at Star Trek. And I mean, they beam things and people up all the time. I think that's that's the direction we need to go to. Beam me up, Scotty kind of stuff. Someday, Nate. Someday. <laughs> that was Felix Poon talking about the sustainability of space travel. And you know, this got cut from the piece, but Felix was telling me about how in 2014, they were able to essentially beam a digital file to a 3D printer in the International Space Station, and it printed out a wrench. So maybe we're not too far off from the Star Trek beam me up Scotty technology, which I think would be really, really cool and a much, I don't want to say safer way of, <laughs> of space travel, but like if you're really afraid of heights or you just don't like sitting in a rocket. I don't know. Haven't you seen Star Trek? People got lost in that beam all the time. And <laughs> that that is not beaming up, sending, emailing a file to the International <laughs> Space Station. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, that's fair. That's very <laughs> yeah, emailing. I don't think we're that close. <laughs> all right. So we've got two more questions that we've got to get to. But first, we're working on a really exciting project, and we want you to be involved. We want to hear about your experiences with electric vehicles, EVs. Have you ever tried to buy an EV? Are you interested in buying one? No matter what you think about cars, we're really interested in what people are thinking. So we've put together the survey. The link is in the show notes, and it's on our website at outsideinradio.org. And thanks. We'll be right back after a break. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, the new host of Outside In, and I'm here with Justine Paradise. We just heard some great tips for getting into stargazing and astronomy and how people are trying to make launches into space more sustainable, potentially. Um, but now I'd like to move on to the question of aliens. Yes, this is what I was hoping for the entire episode. You I were hoping talk for about aliens questions? Aliens. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I want to know and I want to know about space is aliens. Well, I spoke with Taylor Quimby about a question that a listener submitted about the dark forest theory. Justine, would you do the honors? Sure. It is from Francisco on Instagram. And Francisco asked us to look into the dark forest theory. Hmm. So the dark forest theory deals with the possibility of intelligent life beyond planet Earth. And I want to start with this thing called the Drake Equation, which is kind of a theoretical idea that basically attempts to calculate the number of possible advanced civilizations in the galaxy or in the universe. Which is, seems just super easy to do. Well, I mean, yeah. it's super speculative, but basically you take a number of factors like the number of possible planets that could support life, the fraction of those where life actually does take hold, mm -hmm. the fraction of those where life becomes advanced enough to make contact. Right. But then another big factor is time. And then Theoretically, you get the number of civilizations emitting detectable signals in our galaxy or universe. Okay, so is there is there like an answer, like a, a number? I mean, I, I feel like it's more of a thought experiment, but what it does find is that the odds that we're alone are really tiny, like vanishingly small. And that brings us to the dark forest theory. So what the dark forest theory says is we should be very glad that we have not encountered alien life because that encounter might not go so well for us. The term comes from a series called The Three-Body Problem by Chinese sci-fi author Liu Chixin. And Taylor, would you mind reading the passage in question in which he lays out this theory? Sure. The universe is a dark forest. Every civilization is an armed hunter stalking through the trees like a ghost, gently pushing aside branches that block the path and trying to tread without sound. The hunter has to be careful because everywhere in the forest are stealthy hunters like him. If he finds another life, another hunter, angel, or a demon, a delicate infant, to a tottering old man, a fairy, or a demigod, there's only one thing he can do. Open fire and eliminate them. Wow, that is dark. That's super dark. It is dark, and it's, <laughs> it's saying, like, Every other thing that you might encounter is a threat. Right. In fact, many of our sci-fi conceptions of what alien life would be are incredibly threatening. So take the movie Alien, in which the alien in question implants its larvae into human bodies. Yeah, definitely qualifies as threatening. It does not work out for the human host at all. Um, War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells' novel of Martian invasion, adapted many times for radio and cinema. A classic. <laughs> summed up by just vague screaming. <laughs> that kind of gives you the gist. <laughs> and in Steven Spielberg's E.T., it's actually humans whose behavior is the scariest. Oh, yeah, the scene where we're dressed in the hazmat suits? We're the creeps. We're the creeps. And E.T. is just like this gentle being. E.T. Phone home. 
And even if we don't intend to be threatening, it's also possible that alien life, even if it could be benevolent, might perceive us as dangerous. Like they might hear a radio signal announcing a declaration of war from 100 years ago or something. But I will say that the dark forest theory, as well as a lot of authors and directors imagining intelligent life beyond this planet, when you do that, you also explore and make assumptions about the human species almost necessarily. Right. And this tension is uh, represented in this scene from the sci-fi TV show The Expanse as these two characters try to understand the possible alien life that they've encountered. Those things that we're looking for out there, those things might be signals. Or maybe all those other civilizations are gone. Maybe it's the nature of intelligent life to destroy itself. Well, I prefer to think that intelligent life can choose not to. So what I would ask is, what do you prefer to think about intelligent life? And if there is someone else out there, should we be looking for them or should we be trying to hide? I feel like, sure, like there's been a lot of sci-fi movies that have had like aliens attacking us, like Independence Day and Alien and Aliens and Aliens 3 and Aliens 110, but <laughs> the, the entire, entire Aliens franchise. franchise. But also like, wasn't it in Arrival? Remember that movie Arrival? Weren't the aliens like warning people about something? Like they were actually like coming to like tell us something like good, like, hey, you guys need to change your your behavior. I think we were, there was like definitely some, some interactions, some positive interactions. So like- What's well, like the human reaction isn't going to be a singular reaction, right? As we can right. see from like any world event, so that right. that would also be the case here. And so, like, would they have a single um, mood or purpose in coming here? You know, right, right, yeah. Because I mean, if you if you think of it in terms of like colonization of Europeans coming over to North America, and kind of the different ways different indigenous groups interacted with with um colonizing forces you know there was a multitude of of interactions yeah true you know something that got cut from this piece was you know i read that dark forest theory is kind of an example of the prisoner's dilemma problem which is an example from game theory so imagine if you're one of two prisoners who are in custody being interrogated for a crime mm-hmm. and if you give information and betray the other prisoner, but they don't betray you, you get to go free and they get three years of prison. Yeah. If you both betray each other, you each get two years in prison. And if neither of you betrays the other, you both only get a year. Okay. That's just something that um, that goes along with the dark forest theory a lot that I found really fascinating. Right. Because if you're going around in the dark forest thinking like, if you if you assume violence of the other person, right. you're you're creating a more negative outcome than if both people assumed a good outcome. Right. However, if you assume that they're going to be good and they are violent, then that's also a bad outcome for you. So it's um, <laughs> that is definitely a bad outcome for you. Yeah, maybe that's why humans we're always just getting ourselves into trouble in wars and things like that because we just assume the worst in each other. And maybe there would be like an alien life form that would just come down and be like, "Hey, guys, come on." Like, let's just chill out a little bit. This is okay. You think that we would, like, come together as a human race with a lesson from an alien species? <laughs> I know. I think I think if the pandemic taught us anything, I, I think I, I don't have a lot of a lot of a lot of hope in our interactions with aliens. Okay, for our last question, we're bringing to you Taylor, 
who answered one about the movie Don't Look Up. Justine, did you watch that movie? I did not. It, I, it, was, it was like, it's a, it's a metaphor for climate change. I get too much of that. <laughs> but, That's fair. But I heard that it was good. I did watch it. I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but OK, here's Taylor talking to Jessica about the question someone had about that movie. Don't look up. So this one was posed by John Gage on Twitter, and it has to do with the Netflix movie Don't Look Up. Have you seen it? Yes, I watched it on New Year's Eve. So for listeners who have not seen it, I'm going to spoil a couple of plot points in order to answer this question. That's just the way it is. Yeah. So in the film, a Ph.D. student discovers a huge comet hurtling directly towards Earth. There will be mile-high tsunamis fanning out all across the globe. If this comet makes impact, it will have the power of, of, of a billion Hiroshima bombs. Not good. No. Later in the film, a billionaire tech CEO discovers that the comet is packed with, you know, valuable rare metals used in electronics. And he decides that actually this comet might be a good thing. Obviously, one giant comet is a, a major and existential th- threat to our planet, but 30 smaller meteoroids we can handle. So the CEO comes up with a very risky plan to blow the meteor up into smaller pieces and steer them into the ocean so they can be harvested for those rare minerals. Now, I will not say exactly what winds up happening, but John's question is, would the consequences of a large asteroid hit be any less if it were broken up? What do you think? They would burn up. You think so? In the atmosphere, yes. Okay. That's my contention. It is sort of the question, right? Can you really do something like that? And as it turns out, mm, I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) So to find out uh, the answer to this, I spoke with Amy Meinzer. She is the principal investigator for, wait for it, NASA's Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Mission, acronym NEOWISE. We love our acronyms at NASA. (laughs) And she's also the technical science advisor for the film. And she told me when it comes to measuring how destructive a comet or asteroid is going to be, there's four things that scientists think about. How dense is the object? Is it made of solid iron or is it like a loose collection of gravelly rock? Uh, Also, what angle is it going to hit the planet? Will it skim off the side, kind of like you're skipping a rock, or is it going to just smack into it right at 90 degrees? But the two parameters that are the most important are the mass of the object as well as its speed. Okay, the speed and the size. Right. Now, Jessica, have you seen a shooting star before? Yes, I have. So if you had to guess what size object was making a shooting star, uh, would you say maybe the size of an apple, the size of a car, or like the size of a house? Okay, I'm going to go with the middle one, size of a car. So this was a trick question designed to blow your mind. When you see a shooting star in the night sky, you're typically looking at something that's maybe the size of a sand grain or, or a grain of rice at most. What? I know! What? It just doesn't seem possible. Until we figure out the velocities, these things move at speeds of somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 20 kilometers per second. That's 40,000 miles an hour. My point is, if a grain of rice can make that bright flash in the sky, the comet in the movie Don't Look Up is nine kilometers wide, five and a half miles wide. The tech CEO character says he's going to break that into 30 pieces. Each one would still be about two kilometers across. Do the math on that. Each one of those chunks is still very large and even on its own may be capable of causing global impact effects. Global impact effects is a euphemism for really, really, really bad. (laughs) 
So some scientists at Purdue University, they actually put together an impact calculator that I strongly recommend. You can plug in the density, angle, speed, and size of a potential asteroid or comet and see what kind of damage it would do if it hit anywhere on Earth. Cool. Yeah. Um, So Cool. Really cool. (laughs) (laughs) What am I saying? No, it is cool. So I plugged in the info for one of these 30 smaller pieces, and if one of them hit New York City, it would leave a crater the width of Manhattan— it would ignite clothing from Virginia Beach to Canada, and it would shatter glass in buildings in Cuba. That's nuts. 30 pieces that size hitting the planet at the same time. I don't know if it would have the same amount of damage as the original meteor, but I think from the perspective of life on Earth, it wouldn't really matter because we'd all be dead. I think I think they should have said this in the movie. <laughs> So that was producer Taylor Quimby with Jessica Hunt on whether that scheme in Don't Look Up would actually work. Justine, do you have a favorite end of the world movie? Oh, great question. I love, like all good millennials, (laughs) I love an apocalypse movie. (laughs) Absolutely. I feel like we were raised on disaster movies. You know, one that I really remember is Children of Men. Yes. It's, um, that one's about... That was one of my favorites. Yeah, it's an idea that we have collectively lost our ability to reproduce. So no more new humans, no more babies. And what does that do right. to the human psyche to um, to know that there is no future? Um, and the way that it is filmed is just um, really stunning. It's a good one. Yeah, that's a beautiful movie. And it ends on hope, too. It doesn't end hopelessly. I think if people haven't seen that movie, they should definitely check it out. Good suggestion. This is just a movie recommendation edition of Outside Inbox. <laughs> Yeah, we're just coming up with cool movies that you guys should all see. That's it for today's episode, all about, obviously, space. Space! Special thanks to everyone who has written or called in with questions. If you've got a question about the natural world or just thoughts that you'd like to share about the show, you too can call our hotline. It is 844-GO-OTTER. You can also send a voice memo to our email, and that's outsidein at nhpr.org, or write to us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is Outside In Radio. This episode of Outside In was produced and mixed by Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Jessica Hunt. It was edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing from Justine Paradise and Corey Princell. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode was by Howard Harper Barnes, Jerry Lacey, Jules Gaia, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.